Here we go. If you're at home, feel free to read along with me. Leviticus chapter 16, verses 1 through 22, and I'll be reading out of the NIV. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household, and he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the tablets of the covenant law so that he will not die. He is to take some of the bull's blood and with his finger sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. Then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out, having made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole community of Israel. Then he shall come out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it all on the horns of the altar. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times to cleanse it and to consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, 
and the man shall release it in the wilderness. Everybody's still up. <laughs> Thank you, Jasmine. Excellent endurance. I have 11 minutes left for the sermon. Uh, you got to give me a minute to settle in. I've got some weird energy this morning. I've been working from home. Not used to all these people. It's good. If you're watching from home, it's good to be here. I recommend it. The worship is amazing. I'm already looking forward to being done talking so we can worship together again. Uh, but it's also weird to be here. Uh, before I preach, I always have to tinkle. I tinkled here this morning. I have roommates. I have a wife and two kids. When I tinkle at home, thank my daughter there. Yeah. When I tinkle at home, my daughter, she doesn't come in the bathroom at all. Or my wife or my kid, my son, Max. Here, I'm using the toilet. Someone else just walked right in, stood right next to me. They also tinkled at the same time. So it's weird to be back in society. I'm working through it. The other thing you're missing if you're at home is if you're in person, there's one special seat that has a special vantage point from which I look exactly like a butterfly right now with these lights behind me. From home, it's just you only get to see this much. Uh, this morning, we're going to talk about Leviticus 16, and the title of the sermon is Scapegoat. Um, in the passage there, you heard a whole bunch of animals mentioned, but I want to talk about one specific one because I've been convicted about the fact that I didn't know anything about it, really. Um, I'm going to read something from the Internet. And this is because this would take me a lot longer to explain. This is how I understood uh, the Day of Atonement, uh, Yom Kippur, the passage we just read. The tabernacle, and let me explain, not just what was happening there, but what Jesus is in relation to what we just read. The tabernacle and the temple gave a clear picture of how sin separates humans from the holiness of God. In Bible times, only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies by passing through the heavenly veil that hung from the ceiling to floor, creating a barrier between the people and the presence of God. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter and offer the blood sacrifice to cover the sins of the people. However, at the very moment when Jesus died on the cross, Matthew 27, 51 says the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. Thus, Good Friday, the day Jesus Christ suffered and died on the cross of Calvary is the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement. Hebrews chapters 8 to 10 beautifully, beautifully explain how Jesus Christ became our high priest and entered heaven once and for all, not by the blood of sacrificial animals, but by his own precious blood on the cross. Christ himself was the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Thus, he secured for us eternal redemption. As believers, we accept the sacrifice of Jesus as the fulfillment of Yom Kippur, the full and final atonement for sin. To that I say, amen. And where's the scapegoat? This has been my understanding of how Jesus fulfilled Yom Kippur my whole life. But there's more going on in this passage in Leviticus 16, right? Was there, did God just throw in some extra uh, ritual for the Israelites back then? 
Or did Jesus do more than I think he did? I have three parts to this morning's sermon. The first part is I'm just going to tell you the sermon. And then I'm going to explain the sermon. And then I'm going to try and tell you the sermon again. So here's the sermon. What I've been convicted of. The scapegoat is important. It does something meaningful. This website, last night I googled meaning of atonement in the Bible, and this is the first hit that came up. So that's how I found the website. Internet's got great material. Um, The website's correct. Jesus' blood covered our sins, and that's atonement. That's one definition of atonement you can find online, covering. And that's what's happening in this passage. First, Aaron has to atone for his own sins. So the blood of the bull. And he's splashing it all over the place. He's splashing it on the Holy of Holies, so that gets atoned. He's splashing it on the altar, so that gets atoned. Then he kills a goat, and that gets splashed around, and that's for the sins of the Israelites, of the people. So their sins are covered. But the scapegoat, there's no blood involved. So what's it doing there? In fact, the scapegoat gets atoned for. You bring the scapegoat up to the front, and the scapegoat gets atoned somehow. It gets made like holy enough to be used for its purpose. And then stuff happens. So what happens? The priest puts both hands on the head of the goat, confesses the sins of all the people on the goat, and then a different guy, different person every year, they pick a special guy, he leads the goat out into the wilderness, never to be seen again. That seems important. And for me, I mean, there's a million implications, right? But for me, there's two big things that stood out as this kind of sunk in for me. One is, there's a piece of the atonement I've been missing, which is, I understand kind of, I believe that God has forgiven my sins. I'm covered in the blood of Jesus. And when God looks at me, that's what he sees. He sees Jesus. He sees his righteousness. That's been imputed to me. And so I'm forgiven. But, when I, so, you know, I can come to the foot of the cross, I can come right in the Holy of Holies, I can come right up to the foot of the throne, I can talk to God directly. But as soon as I bring my gaze back down to earth, I kind of feel crappy again. Because you didn't shed your blood for me. I didn't shed my blood for myself. And whether God's got a two-way mirror or not, I'm still carrying my crap, Right? I've still got my guilt and my shame, and I feel it when I see the people that I've wronged. And I've been working from home for two years, so I see these people all the time. But Leviticus 16 says that's not true. I don't have my crap anymore. My sin wasn't just forgiven, but it was put on something else and walked out. It's gone. It's in the wilderness now. It's forgotten. So that's the first thing. When I'm beating myself up for my sins, when I'm feeling my guilt, when I'm feeling my shame, I'm rejecting a piece of this, right? I'm not just in a different position from God who doesn't see those things, but I'm rejecting the piece where it was carried out of the village, where it was carried out of my heart. And the second piece is, the goat didn't do it for one person. It wasn't, we like to talk, ooh, Evangelical America, we like to talk about the personal relationship with God, and it's important. But that's not what Leviticus 16 says. 
the high priest confessed all the sins of all the Israelites onto the goat, and they were all walked out of there. Which means, if the day before your neighbor offended you, and now you want to go and get your vengeance, now you want to go and make, you know, get even. You're going to have to explain to him, I understand that God forgave your sins. And my sins were put on that goat and carried out of the village. But I'm not sure it worked for you, buddy. And that doesn't work. If the scapegoat worked, it worked for everybody who was there. That's why it's, it's important. Everybody's there, right? The whole community is there. They all see it happen. The high priest confesses everybody's sins. All of the sins are carried out of the village. And now you're not left with anything to hold against each other because God says they're gone. So that's the sermon. But I understand I'm supposed to fill a certain amount of time. So now I'm going to explain the sermon. Scapegoat. I think one of the reasons this is hard for me is it doesn't have the same meaning it used to really. Or maybe it does, but it's got a different connotation. Scapegoat's always bad now, right? If someone was scapegoated, you know something bad happened. They didn't deserve it. That's like our definition. If you Google it, it's built into the definition. Unjustly, it usually says. Or for reasons of expediency, it'll say. The blame or the guilt of a group is cast on to a person or a thing for expediency. For the benefit of the scapegoaters. And it's not a Jewish tradition only. We use it to describe things all the time. You could use it to describe why I yell at the guy who stops at a yellow light when I'm trying to commute home from work. He didn't do anything wrong, but I'm convinced he deserves to be yelled at. And why is that? Because something else happened over there. Either I did something wrong or someone did something wrong to me. I've got this junk inside of me. I'm already angry. And now I have a person that I can take it out on. I'm going to feel better. And that's how it usually works outside of God's prescribed tradition. And like I said, it's not always, it's not usually a one-on-one -on -one that we think of. It's a communal activity, right? And this has been going on since the beginning of time. As Christians, we know what the junk is. I keep saying junk. I might say crap later. The stuff inside you that feels so bad. We know that's sin. But not everyone has the same diagnosis, right? We're all walking around with baggage, with grievances, with bitterness, with resentments, with anger. We've been treated unfairly. And it's got to come out somehow. So historically, throughout history, when a community has enough of this stuff build up, they tend to find some way to release it, either by beating the crap out of each other or finding someone else to take it out on. And when you choose option two, we call it scapegoating. The most famous example, if I was giving this sermon on Reddit, we would talk about Hitler, the Nazis. The Nazis scapegoated the Jews. Germany lost World War I. I'm not a historian, so I'm not going to explain everything that was going on at that time, but there were guns. And Hitler blamed the Jews for all kinds of things, not just the Jews, but all kinds of oppressed groups, all kinds of, um, I don't have a good word for it, unprivileged groups. He blamed them for all sorts of things. 
And people agreed, yeah, it is their fault. And then they took it out on them. They punished them for the things they've been accused of doing. Millions were killed. America has its own proud tradition of anti-Semitism. And not just anti-Semitism, but we also have done an incredible job of scapegoating black people in America. Uh, another word that we might use for scapegoating is lynching. Studies actually show that lynching is most common in places where the economy is the worst, times and places. And it makes sense, right? Because there's more suffering, there's more junk, there's more to be upset about. And we don't know how to deal with it, so it's gotta come out somewhere. And in order to preserve your community, in order to preserve your relationship with your family, they were all working from home then, right? In a rural economy, you're all working from home. You have to be able to preserve these close relationships. So what do you do? You find some other and you take it out on them. It doesn't always look like killing. Sometimes it's just beating. Maybe you burn their house down and you expel them from the community. And it works. The KKK was evil, but it served a function. People in the KKK tend to have a pretty tight bond. But I'm describing something clearly evil, right? Clearly wrong. I'm gonna call this satanic scapegoating. And it's the most common form. You find someone who doesn't deserve it, you convince yourself they do, and then you punish them somehow. Satanic scapegoating, it's bad. But that can't be, that can't be what's happening in Leviticus 16, it can't be. God's not prescribing a satanic ritual. So I wanna highlight a few differences. First, the people don't choose the scapegoat. God does. People cast lots, which is a way of taking it out of their hands. Um, today, if you were to cast lots, it, you know, they're basically writing two names down, putting it in a hat and pulling them out. Today, we might call it luck, but they understood that by taking it out of their hands, they're putting it in God's. God is choosing the scapegoat, not the people. And they confess the sins onto this scapegoat, but no one has convinced themselves it did any of those things, right? We haven't convinced ourselves, yeah, get it! No, that's not how it works. So you're not taking down the temperature of the community by venting your rage or by expressing your anger. It's just the declaration of God. God says your sin is gone. That's it. It's nothing you did to make yourself feel better. It's nothing the community did. It's just the word of God. And we're, he's very clear about what it is that's being taken away. He understands the correct diagnosis, and that's your sin. Your sin is what needs to be removed, and all of your sin is removed by this scapegoat. It's gone. And last thing I'll point out, it's just a goat. Right? They don't find another person they don't find a group of people. They don't find, um, you know, actually in other communities, usually ancient, because this wouldn't fly today, they also ritualized this, and sometimes it'd be a baby, sometimes a virgin. There's some kind of belief that the better the scapegoat was, the more valuable it would be, but it couldn't be anything that looked too much like you, right? It needed to be separate, it needed to be special, otherwise the community's not gonna be together by it. Right, there's gonna be resentments. How dare you take my sister? No, it's gotta be something different. 
my favorite story is the, there's communities in Greece where they believe this, right? The scapegoat needed to be higher quality. And so they would take a beggar and treat them great for a year in order to make them worthy of being scapegoated without taking someone from the upper class. I thought that was interesting. But that's not what's happening here. It's just a goat. This is godly scapegoating. Not evil punishment of another person. God's not going to punish you for what you did to me. I don't know what you did, but you're sitting very close to the front. Because it's evil. It's wrong to take out on one person the guilt of someone else. That's satanic scapegoating. It's not God's way. Okay. Next. Jesus. This is really important. What was Jesus doing on the cross? I told you most of it, right? And this covers a lot of ground. He's the first bull in the, in the chapter. He's the first goat that's killed for the people. There's a ram that he may or may not be. He's also the Passover lamb. I preached on that a couple years ago. I'll always remember because Rob White sent me a Facebook message shortly after. I think his exact words were, I loved your sermon and I disagreed with every word. <laughs> Which I really appreciated. But one, one thing I took away from that exchange is my instinct was to be defensive. No, I have defined this correctly. I gave a sermon how Jesus was the Passover lamb. No, I have defined this correctly. Jesus is the Passover lamb, full stop. The fact is he is so much more than that. It's the same mistake that this website's making. Jesus is the goat, the one that was killed, the blood that covers your sins, full stop. Well, you had me until you said stop. It's so dangerous how a truth can turn into a hundred lies because you can take one true thing and use it as a weapon to knock down a hundred other true things. So one truth is a hundred lies. So Rob, thank you. So in this case, Jesus on the cross is the bull, is the goat, maybe a ram, is a lamb. He's also our scapegoat. And it's obvious if you look at what happened, right? He's killed at the behest of an angry mob who's convinced he deserves it. He's pulling our society apart at the seams. He's threatening the social order. They didn't think they were scapegoating him. They thought he deserved it. And we can see now why, right? They've been persecuted by the Romans and they can't do anything about that. They don't have the strength to fight against the Romans. And nobody, nobody's in a position to stand up for Jesus. His disciples are cowering in fear and shame while he's being interrogated. Peter's denying he even knows the guy. He's the perfect scapegoat. He's nobody. And they kill him because, so Pilate, he talks to Jesus and he's like, what'd you do wrong? Jesus is like, nothing. And he's like, well, then why should I kill you? This is confusing. And he goes outside and he says, I would like to set him free. Is that okay? And everyone, no! Kill him! And Pilate says, well, I'd rather kill him than you kill me. So, okay. So Pilate sentences him to death and he dies and it works. The riot that Pilate fears never materializes. The mob is satisfied. Enough of their anger has been released through this violence. 
In fact, we see new relationships made. One of the Gospels tells us that Pilate and Herod become buddies after this. The communities knit more closely together than ever before. The problem is this is satanic scapegoating. This can't be what Leviticus 16 is about. This is satanic scapegoating. Jesus is a satanic scapegoat. Whoops. Then Easter comes. Ha <laughs> ha. Jesus is resurrected. And the whole thing's turned on its head. Right? Because he starts explaining exactly who he is. He'd been kind of secretive about it. He'd been vague. He'd been speaking in riddles. But he starts actually explaining the scriptures, opening his followers' eyes to who he is. And now we've got some problems with the satanic scapegoating. That did happen. And the first is, he's completely innocent of it. He didn't do anything wrong. He didn't deserve to die. The second is, he seems to have volunteered for it. How satisfying is it to take your vengeance out on someone who says, yeah, go ahead. I understand. It's not my fault, but I understand. There's not much satisfaction there. Third is, he's God. You killed God. He completely exposed the lie of satanic scapegoating, which was the victim deserves it. The persecutors are right. No, the persecutors are wrong. The victim is right. That's whose side the good guys are on. You know, the, uh, I don't know what movie this is from. I just know it from Twitter. Are we the baddies? Does anyone know what movie this is? This guy gets the job. What is it? Hot Fuzz. Oh, good. That's not where I thought we were going to end up today. Oops. I was thinking Schindler's List or something. And then, from here, where we stand today, we, we know everything Jesus told his followers. Not everything, but we, we've had the scriptures explained to us because we have the New Testament. And now we know not only was the satanic scapegoat in evil, but Jesus really was a scapegoat, the godly scapegoat. When Jesus, John 1, first chapter, Jesus is walking down the street. It's probably a field or something. John the Baptist sees him coming, and I love this. It makes me think of you every time, Rob. John the Baptist mashes the Old Testament together and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There are no lambs who take sin away. Rob correctly pointed out to me two years ago. There's a scapegoat for that. John the Baptist says, here comes your Passover lamb. Here comes your scapegoat. I wish he'd kept going. It would have saved me a lot of trouble. Psalm 103 tells us what Jesus did to our sins. He removed them from us as far as the east is from the west. Isaiah 53 says the iniquity of us all was put upon him. I hope I get this one right. 1 Peter 2 it says he bore all of our sins on the cross. This isn't language of covering. This isn't the blood. This is the scapegoat, the goat who lived, the Harry Potter goat. That's who Jesus was for us. Nobody left my Harry Potter joke. <laughs> That's who Jesus was for us. He didn't just cover your sins, but he carried them on himself away from you. And not just you, not just you, but all of the witnesses 
Everybody who claims the blood also claims the scapegoat. Whosoever believeth in him. What are you believing in? You're believing in all the things he did on the cross. You believe in the Passover lamb. You believe in the dead goat, the dead, you get the idea. And the scapegoat. You claim that for yourself. Jesus didn't just forgive you. He took your sins with him. They're gone. So when you tonight are at home having trouble sleeping and trying to find some comfort in your good old friend, your favorite sin, that favorite piece of shame that you know is wrong, but is the only thing that's been with you for this past two and a half years consistently, reject that lie. If you believe what Jesus did on the cross, then that shame is gone. He didn't just forgive you. You have to forgive yourself too because the sin is gone. Now I want to explain. No, I'm not explaining the sermon in the last one, right? I'm just doing the sermon again. So we're to the last point. I'm going to do the sermon again. Jesus is your scapegoat. And by his death, he exposed the lie of satanic scapegoating, which is that the victim deserves it. And now we know that the victim side is the right side. This is hard to explain because we already know it, right? Like I said, scapegoating has a negative connotation today. That wasn't always the case. It used to be for the powerful to oppress the weak. It made perfect sense. In fact, you had a duty to. It was right. Might had to be exercised or it was being wasted. But that's not the world we live in today. Today we understand the victim side is the side of the good guys. This is so true that a lot of the fights we have is who's on the side of the victim. Look at politics. We'll do hot topics. Abortion. What do you say if you are against abortion laws? You say you're defending the victims of abortion, the babies. And what do you say if you're against the laws? Am I saying this right? If you want abortion laws, yeah, you want laws against abortion, you're pro-life, you'll say. You're defending the victims, the babies. Let's say you're pro-choice. You're against these laws restricting access to abortion. You say you're protecting the victims, the women, whose rights are being stripped. It's a battle of who's got the more righteous victim? Who's got the right victim? Who's the oppressor? Because the good guy's not the oppressor, the good guy's on the other side. If I say, I want to defend the rights of refugees to come to America, victims of oppression in their own country, the response isn't screw the refugees, the response is, well, I need to stand up for the rights of the people in America who are potential victims of crime, who are potential victims of unemployment, theft, violence. It's victim against victim. Black lives matter. Blue lives matter. My guy's the victim of injustice. My guy's being unfairly scapegoated. That's the language of everything. But it's almost always turned into a lie. It's almost always used to lead to satanic scapegoating. Satan's got a lot of practice at this. He's an accuser. That's how this whole thing started. He understands that people need to get this junk off their chest or else they're gonna go looking for a better answer. And so he's the one that's been whispering in our ears, go get that guy. He did it. Did you see how he looked at you? 
you see that? You can't take that. Go get your brothers. Beat the crap out of him. And he's doing it now. He understands we're not going to fall for the same tricks he was doing before because Jesus exposed it. And now the world is different. The victim side is the good side. And so now you take the side of the victim and you lift yourself up and you look at the oppressor and you say, you owe me a pound of flesh. Ah, crud. You're not the side of the victim anymore, are you? You're out looking for a new one. You found yourself a group of people who all agrees with unanimity who the bad guy is. And you are going to get him. I didn't look this up. I'm just going to say it. I think it's probably true. Cal's got the internet. If you go on Reddit, you are going to find a lot more people on the pages raging against the other side than you will find on the pages thinking about how to help the victims that they're supposedly defending. Being on the side of the victim doesn't make you the good guy if you're using it as an excuse to scapegoat somebody again. I don't want to talk about politics, though. That wasn't the sermon, right? The sermon is personal. It's in here. How often do you feel like the victim and you're right? You've been sinned against. In here. Logan has done something against you. We'll use him because he didn't show up this morning. He's not been responsive to you. Maybe he's been cold. Was he dismissive? Did he forget to check in after you told him about the important thing that was going on in your life? I'm using small examples because I don't want to accuse him of anything serious, but I'm not trying to belittle the potential sins that have been committed against you. You really have been sinned against by people in this room and people in New Orleans and by people in New Orleans for a wedding. You're the victim. You're the good guy. But you don't get to seek your vengeance. Because if you're claiming Jesus as your savior, you're claiming him as your scapegoat. And so is Logan. You have the same scapegoat. He took your sin and Logan's away. Jesus told his disciples, forgive and you'll be forgiven. Refuse to forgive and my father in heaven will refuse to forgive you. And I think that sounds a little harsh. It can sound like be perfect or I will reject you. But that's not it. If you understand the concept of the scapegoat, you understand that what he's saying is, if you don't forgive, you've rejected me. You're claiming you're owed something by your neighbor, by your brother, by your sister. What? What are you owed? What is it that I didn't do enough of on the cross? What is it I couldn't carry away that's still there? How did I come up short? He didn't. If you can't forgive, it's because you don't believe enough. I'm not saying you're not safe, but I'm saying you're missing something. What Jesus did on the cross was complete. It is finished. There's more than one reason why the Leviticus 16 version 
of scapegoating looks different than satanic scapegoating. One is Satan was wrong and he was twisting it, but also, I mean, there's no magic here, right? God could have just told them, he could have just said to Moses, go tell the people their sins are gone. But he didn't. He wanted them to see. He wanted them to understand. He wanted there to be a ritual because he wanted everyone to know Israel was different. It's important that God's people be different. Because if you're living actually in relationship with God, your very life should be a testimony of what that looks like. You're supposed to be a picture of the kingdom of God here on earth. And that's true for us today. Out there, I get it. I understand why they're looking for their vengeance. I understand why they need their pound of flesh. I understand why they need to beat up the bad guy. Because they don't have the answer. It's beyond them. But if you believe in Jesus as your savior, if you believe in Jesus as your scapegoat, then you do have the answer, and so your life has to be different. And it especially has to be different in the community of the church. We don't hold it against each other. We don't even... I find for myself, I'm not so tempted to go look for a pound of flesh when I've been wronged. But if I can find somebody, one of my friends, who was wronged, now I get a posse together. It's wrong. Forgive. How many times the disciples said? Seven times? Am I supposed to forgive the same person seven times? Seventy times seven, Jesus said. And he didn't mean 490. He meant again and again and again and again and again. Like Jesus did. That's the side of the good guys. You're down? Stay there. Don't use it as an excuse to leverage yourself up on top of somebody else. Last thing I'll say, don't try to like white knuckle this effort. Don't try and achieve this on your own because the disciples had good reason to say, really Jesus, seven times? How many times am I supposed to go through this? You can't do this on your own. But you don't have to. That's the point. That's why we can do it. Because we are in relationship with God. And not like, we know where the tent is. When Jesus left, he sent the Holy Spirit. Not a vague concept, not an idea, but the person of God to live inside of you. You know what he called him? The advocate. I'll send you the advocate. What do you need when the accuser is whispering in your ear? The advocate, the defense attorney, the truth. And he's yours. None of us are getting this right. That's okay. But if you want to, ask the Holy Spirit for help. Because we can get this right. We can join this battle that Jesus led us into on the weekend of Good, e of good Easter. Of Easter. He had a clash with Satan. Godly scapegoating versus satanic scapegoating, and he won. The decision is final, but we're still fighting now. The war still rages. 
We know what the outcome will be, but in the meantime, we have to play our role. We have to be witnesses. We have to stand up and say, I was there and I saw it and it changed me. So we're going to do the thing we do. We call it a time of response. We're going to sing, which I recommend. But we're also going to have prayer available to you in the back of the room. Because when you go home, all but three of you are going to forget everything I said today. But the Holy Spirit has been working in you already this morning and can change you now if you'll just accept it. If you'll just listen to the right voice. Saying, come to the back of the room and ask for help.